Hello and welcome to this episode of The Real World. Today I will be discussing part two of Gridlock with Steve Loveridge, an electrical engineer with over 40 years experience in the electricity distribution industry. Steve will be talking us through the potential implications of the introduction of electric vehicles on both local and national grids and the wider real estate industry as a whole. So Steve, thank you for joining me for part two of this discussion. Now, in part one, you talked me through how electricity is distributed throughout the UK and with the introduction of electric vehicles, how much electricity will be required to fuel the country in a sense. Now, my first question is, is how is this electricity going to be generated? Is that not through fossil fuels? Uh, we've we've traditionally used fossil fuels for electricity. You know, we've used coal and oil and gas in just the same way as we've used fossil fuels, coal, oil and gas to power trains and cars for the last 100, 120 years. And we're moving away from that. Um, and, you know, renewable sources like wind uh, and solar power and geothermal and hydroelectric they're all sources that don't that generate electricity from non-fossil fueled sources nuclear is another one although it's not strict i don't struggle with the idea that nuclear is reliable as renewable it's more of a non-fossil fuel energy source which gives you you know there's a difference between kicking carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere that you can't deal with and producing radioactive waste but it's still the same problem whereas you know, this planet is bathed in solar energy and the wind, every, every, every energy source on this planet basically comes from the sun. You know, the wind is driven by solar energy. Um, if we could harvest solar energy falling onto this planet, we wouldn't need fossil fuels at all. But the point is, is that, you know, wind turbines, solar panels and the like are fossil fuel free. And so I uh, the, you go back to motorway service station analogy. I think we're going to end up in, within a situation where if electric cars take off and say in 2040, we're in a situation where most electric, mo most vehicles are electric, then your motorway service stations are going to look pretty different. They're going to have major um, supply in feeds, you know, grid type power structures going into them and I think also they're likely to be supplemented by renewable energy sources on site or in the location you might see wind turbines or solar arrays going up around motorway service stations to cater for what will effectively be 20,000 house townships arriving in, in the form of electric cars. Now, the other problem is, I know that Philip Plato was on, and, and I think he said that, your webcast a few weeks ago, and he said that, I think it was, he, he said that he felt that electric cars were a transitory, possibly a transitory technology, and that maybe hydrogen or some other fuels. And, and, and if that comes to pass, then this isn't going to happen. You know, it might be that we put a hydrogen infrastructure in, for example, which might change things. Um, but just, just to explain, just to talk, talk about a real world example. I mean, we're, we're sat on the black, in the Blackdown Hills at the moment, aren't we? And we're in, we're in a little village and there's 10 houses here. And we have, this village has an 11,000 volt line going over the top just up the road um, that actually links Wellington to Taunton via the villages on the Blackdown Hills. And 
there's about 10 houses here and we have a 25 kilowatt transformer feeding these 10 houses, right? So let's put this into perspective. That's one sixth of a fast charger for 10 houses. Yeah. Now, so, and I think it was Isambard Kingdom Brunel who said that any person can build a bridge, but it takes an, it that stands up, but any person, it needs an engineer to build a bridge that only just stands up. Yeah, we've had years of regulation. Nobody, is, nobody wants to pay for something they're not going to use. So the power system is designed with very little fat in it because nobody's prepared to pay money for something that they can't foresee being used. So there is some leeway in there, but and, and it's perfectly feasible for me to go and buy an electric car and add a three and a half kilowatt charger to my power supply, which remember takes me from one and a half to five kilowatts. So it's tripled my household load. You're gonna to get to a point where my neighbor wants one as well. And then his neighbor wants one. It's gonna be an incremental growth, yeah? and. I might take the fat out of this or the capacity out of the system. My neighbor might be a slight overload, which because he doesn't plug his car in at the same time as mine. Yeah. But bear in mind that these three and a half kilowatt chargers take 20 hours to charge your car. So I think people are going to come home and whack it straight on charge and leave it on charge until they go out to work the following morning. Might cause an overload situation, blow fuses, but it'll get to a point where the electricity company says, I'm sorry, but we can't accept any more electric cars in, in our village because the, without somebody paying for the transformer to be upgraded, which might mean an, uh, an upgrade to the 11 kV line, 11,000 volt line between Taunton and Wellington to achieve that. The other option is to say, well, actually, um, for the electricity company to say, well, we want control of your electric car so we can allow everybody to connect, but we'll only we'll ration the charging between you. Well, the other option is for everybody to say, well, I want to put a three and a half kilowatt charger. You've got to have three or four kilowatts of solar or wind capacity generation on your house. So you generate your car charger directly within the confines of your house. Well, that would be the obvious answer, but what does that mean for us as individuals? I mean, I've just done some, some, some stats, or I've had a search on the internet today, and you can get um, uh, an electricity um, photovoltaic array that will provide you with about 50 odd charges of electricity per year, which will allow you to do 12,000 miles a year on a car, and those solar, that solar array will cost you £5,000. But that only charges when it's light and, when, and it charges better when the sun is shining. Okay. Now, there's no guarantee your car is going to be plugged into your house when the sun is shining. So you might have to couple that with a battery on site in your home. So the Solar panels charge the battery and you plug your car into the battery, but the battery is about £12,000. So for, for about £20,000, £17,000, £20,000, you could have a largely self-sufficient power system that allowed you to do 12,000 miles a year without impacting the grid. And there's going to be some discussions on which is the most economic way to do it, because 
our local electricity company has published their green recovery plan recently, and they've, they're doing 75 projects to increase the renewable capacity of their system. And these are the low hanging fruit that they can achieve in two years when they're spending 60 million pound. And including that 60 million pound, they're putting in, wait for it, 470 electric vehicle charging points, which if you say that half the money is going to electric vehicle charging points, that means that each charging point is costing £65,000 to connect to the grid. So what's best to spend? Sixty-five grand on the power network or solar panels and batteries in people's houses for 20000 65 on the wires and cables in, in the outside or let people generate it themselves. That, that, that comparison won't stand robust examination, but that's the sort of scale of the, the, the problem that we've got. So I think we're going to see a serious um, debate coming to fruition, certainly between the 2030 and 2040, where it's going to be just how are we going to deal with this load? Because basically what, what we're going to do, and if you add, you add into that also that the sales of new gas boilers are being stopped and they're being replaced with air source heat pumps, which is transferring the load from the gas network onto the electricity network. So the, the, the demand on the power network is going to at least double because you're adding all of the transport, petrol and, and diesel usage onto the electricity network and a lot of the gas network onto the electricity network as well. The electricity network is going to need a huge, a huge amount of work. And this increase in load on the electricity network, how will it affect the real estate industry as a whole? Now, the reason I'm talking to you, bringing this into context with DJB, is because, you know, if you want to put a large substation next to a motorway service station in, in open countryside, you're going to need planning permission, you're going to need land ownership and access rights, you're going to need all sorts of consents and the like. You know, land purchasing and what have you, you know, solar panels, you know, leasing rights and all this sort of stuff. Um, and not only is it an issue about the land, it's about also, you know, landowners dealing with, or businesses dealing with distribution companies to make sure that A, the designs that they come up with meet the criteria that are required and also that the charging regime for that work is correctly allocated because i'm sure you understand this is going to become very complicated as to how you are, how do you allocate the costs and there are going to be arguments about how the costs are allocated you know is it borne by government you know is it fair that if i've had my car charger connected for free and my neighbor has got away with it for free you can't charge the next person who connects you can't charge the straw that breaks the camel's back with everything so there's going to be a huge amount of debate on this the other thing is is that somerset county council has just said as part of their strategy that they they don't see providing a large number of public charges for users on streets they see these charges going into destinations like supermarkets now a typical supermarket might take between three and five hundred kilowatts if it's a big one yeah that's only three or four fast charges. What impact is three or four fast charges going to have 
to the customer base of a large supermarket, people aren't going to A, want to wait for a slow charger, and they're not going to want to queue for a fast charger. So I, I foresee that these destinations are going to have, have to have robust power upgrades, which is going to mean new substation sites, cable access, you know, housing estates are going to need new um, substation upgrades and the like, but also they're going to need solar panels on roofs and all this sort of stuff, which might have landlord tenant arrangements. And, and so the, it's going to be a hugely complex, it's going to be a vast amount of work in, in all of this, not just from a technical point of view, but from a legal point of view. And they're going to need experts in place to, to make sure that A, it's done correctly, B, it's done in line with off-gem guidance as far as um, the charging and the passing on the cost goes, and C, that it's done fairly because you can't allow the people that break the camel's back to bear the brunt of the costs. Okay, well, that was really interesting. Thank you, Steve. Um, but one of my last questions is, is, do you think that governments are prepared to implement the ban in, in 2030 of the production of fossil fuel vehicles? And are they actually aware of this vast implication on the electricity distribution industry? Um, I mean, who knows what's, what, what the drivers are going to be in 10, 15 years time. You know, we're seeing what's going on in Western America, Western America at the moment, you know, with their heat, heat domes and record temperatures and forest fires. And, you know, we don't know what political drivers are going to be in place in 10 or 15 years time. You know, you, you wouldn't need many examples of wildfires in the UK to change the political focus from this. And anything can be done if it's politically viable. I think that something has got to be done because, I mean, I, I think there's going to be an element of people not being prepared to pay for electric cars, not being able, to, not, not being able to or willing to pay for the system upgrades necessary to provide the, um, the infrastructure for the charging. So I think there's going to be quite a few drivers to keep existing petrol and diesel cars on the road, but it's going to be a there's going to be a balance between catching up between the system catching up with the number of electric vehicles on the road, but also of upgrading the system to drive the number of electric vehicles on the road, because nobody's going to want to buy an electric car if they can't charge it. So it, it's is the cart before the horse or the horse before the cart. And this stuff hasn't been thought through in any great detail, as far as I can see, in terms of where we're going to end up. And that's why I think that the previous comment about electricity is a transient energy source. I think that that will clarify as we go through and the pressure of trying to achieve something might accelerate the development of hydrogen. In that case, all of this is null and void. And we might have done this investment for very little gain. You know, I, th I think it's, a, it, it's, a, it's an incredibly difficult, difficult situation. The other problem is, is that it's rather likely roll out a rural broadband in this country. One of the major constraints of that is not necessarily the money or the willingness to do it. One of the major constraints of that is the capacity of the industry to, to maintain or deliver the skilled staff necessary to do the work. You know, the electricity industry was privatized in 1991 and the, 
this, this, you know, they are going to need a huge investment in skills to enable this to be delivered in a, in a, in a proper manner that works. So there's, there's enormous challenges. And what I'm saying is it's not just a question of just plug it into the mains. People that say the national grid can cope might be absolutely correct. The national grid might be able to cope. But I know for sure that the, the 11,000 volt network around here isn't going to be able to cope. I mean, can you imagine it that if you've got an imaginary 100 house estate, and typically the way a 100 house estate might work is that you'll have two 11,000 volt cables coming into a substation. And a substation is a, generally a four by four meter square plot of land that's tucked into somebody's garden somewhere or in a block of garages. And knowing housing developers, every single square inch of that estate has been parceled up to squeeze maximum value from that land. So everybody goes and buys an electric car and the electricity company needs to treble the capacity of that housing estate. All right, you can dig up the roads, all of the roads to do it, at what cost? But where does the land come from to fit in a three times bigger substation? on that housing estate. Is anybody gonna be willing to give up part of their garden for more substation? It's a, it's a thing they don't want there anyway. It, it, it's a really, we, we're gonna face a lot of challenges and I foresee, you know, bring it back to DJB, a lot of it is gonna be agreed legally and there's gonna be negotiations, there's gotta be business cases, there's gonna be, you know, then there might even be litigation on it. You know, it's, it's colossal. And, uh, you know, and I think that in all of this, whoever does this negotiation and legal work is going to need to have some, some idea of how this stuff works, hence the discussion about what a volt and amp and a watt is, because it, it's all over people's heads. I mean, and to give you another example, um, my daughter lives in London and where she lives, I've noticed that they are replacing the doors on street lamps with car chargers. Yes, because of course the majority of people in the UK don't have off-street parking. So is that the only solution? Well, yeah, but the supply into a street light is designed to deliver a supply to what is now a 100 watt LED light bulb. And now you want to put a three and a half, you want to increase that by a factor of 35 to plug in a slow electric car charger. Now, I personally don't know of any engineering solution that is engineered with an overcapacity of a factor of 35, maybe double, but not 35. And they might be able to upgrade the service into one street light. So the street light will, that street light will be able to provide a car charger but then it's going to be, we want, to, we want to do the next one down the road and the next one down the road and the next one down the road. And sooner or later, you're overlaying all of the cables in the road to all of the streetlights and all of the houses. We're talking about a wholesale rebuild of the power network in the UK here, if this comes to pass. And who's paying for it? And who's going to do it? It's taken us 120 odd years to get to this point in terms of building it. It's huge absolutely colossal and it has there has to be something clever there has to be you know there are going to be clever things like we're going to you know you might have to lose control of when your car charges then you know there, you know, there might be a, an app and but you don't have control over it it might be that 
the, the, the distribution operator, the electricity company has control over when you charge your car. It, it, it might also mean, and this is another interesting thing to, uh, to think about, it might also mean that the, the practical difficulties of doing this might even mean that we move away from ownership of our own vehicles entirely. That's an interesting point. You can think about this yourself. How often, what percentage of its life is your car sat on your drive or in a car park doing nothing? 95% of the time? Yes, probably around 90% of the time. We, we, we conceivably, if, if, if we could make efficient use of vehicles, 100%, you know, utilisation factor of nearer to... 70%, 80%, whatever, from the 5% that we've got at the moment, you could, you'd have a 16th of the number of vehicles on the road. So when you couple that with self-driving, I mean, the reason you don't get a taxi at the moment is because I would imagine, A, because there's the convenience side of, of having a car on your drive that we're used to drop, dropping into. But the other side of it is the perceived cost of it. Now, I would argue that a taxi really is, is not much, that much more expensive than driving. But, but there's two factors in, in the cost of a taxi that I think are going to change. The first one is the maintenance of the vehicle. There's far fewer moving parts in an electric vehicle. The maintenance costs of the electric vehicle should be lower and should come down as we go. And the lifespan of an electric vehicle is conceivably more than the electric. The other factor in um, taxi is the is the cost of the driver but then you go on to the um tesla and google earth self-driving vehicle prototypes you know you could have an app on your phone that calls you a driverless uber as and when you want it and that autonomously comes and picks you up and charges itself into its pre-designated thing and by doing that you could take the majority of cars off the road we might need to accept that there's a a loss of convenience. Do you, do you see what I'm trying to Completely. It seems that that would be one of the very, very few solutions to the problem. My question is, is that as a society, are we organised and essentially selfless enough to implement that? I, I think it's one of the biggest challenges that, that the electricity industry has ever faced as to how they do it. And, and it needs to be a societal challenge as well and it is a societal challenge Pe that people aren't going to be able to plug electric vehicles willy-nilly into the power network and it needs political leadership and vision and what have you and we need we need some idea of where we're going to because the investment is going to be in the hundreds of billions and uh i, I you know we are going to end up with either significant changes in our transportation habits and the convenience that we have from that or we're going to end up with hugely more power lines or hugely more solar panels and wind turbines around the place um, or a different technology final word here is that the society of motor manufacturing traders um, publicly announced a couple of weeks ago 
that by the end of the 2020s, they foresaw the need for 2.3 million new car chargers, which has huge ramifications if, they, if they're all connected to the, to the electricity infrastructure as it stands at the moment. And I will emphasize that is, it's not my personal opinion about the electricity bit because that's technically, you know, the, 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 the way electricity works is fact, but this is, you know, the opinions expressed are mine. I just struggle to see the practicality of how it's going to do without a vast amount of investment. The fact is, is that there is going to be major change and that is going to mean land change usage and leases, you know, leasing rights and access rights and what have you. And it's going to affect a lot of people, not just the big landowners. It might be somebody living in Acacia Road, having the electricity coming knocking on the door saying, can we buy half of your garden from you? And that's exactly the point that Philip made was that it might be someone that doesn't even own a car. It, everybody will be affected by this. Everywhere that we might want to plug a car into is going to be affected. And as you said, you know, the person with the substation in Acacia Gardens or wherever might not even have a car, but they're unlucky or fortunate if the financial incentives are there to have a substation right next to them. Well, I think that is the perfect time to round this conversation off. Steve, thank you so much for joining me. It was an absolute pleasure. Well, it's always a pleasure to talk to you, Hannah. And to everybody listening, thank you very much for joining us on this episode of The Real World. 